In the early days of Christianity, that wasn't even a word back then, the first Christians were really just Jews who happened to follow Jesus, believing him to be the long-promised Messiah. In those days, there was a lot of debate about who was worthy of the faith, who was good enough to be baptized. Some of the hardline Jewish conservatives wanted to disqualify Gentiles and non-Jews from the nascent church. Others, like Paul, would preach the gospel to anyone who would listen, working diligently to bring everyone they could to Christ. Who was in and who was out was a hotly debated subject. Now in this story, we find Philip, who's one of the earliest Christ followers, in conversation with an Ethiopian dignitary. At first glance, these men have little in common. One is relatively poor, the other relatively well-off. They come from different ethnic cultures, different parts of the world. Philip is a Christ follower, the other man is not. In 21st century America, they'd have little reason to even talk to each other. That was probably just as true back then. But God orchestrates a meeting between them, and they learn that no one is in or out. We're all traveling on this road together. A reading from the book of Acts. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I was in my early 30s, already a father, when I decided that I was going to grow my first mustache. Now, some of you might remember this vaguely, uh, but it was such a weak attempt that you'd be forgiven for thinking that I'd just forgotten to shave. It was the mustache of a boy scarcely out of puberty, a thin bit of fuzz adorning my upper lip that lent me a rather untrustworthy veneer. I give you exhibit A. 
Now, some people can pull this off, but I don't think I'm one of them. You may recall this story, but I was at the park with my son, Ethan, uh, one day back then, when another small boy approached me, asking me if I was Ethan's father. I told him that I was, to which he replied with palpable relief, oh, that's good. I thought you were a stranger. <laughs> now, that's the precise moment that I knew the stash had to go. Human beings develop an inherent suspicion of other people from a young age. Most of the children I've baptized in the last couple of years have been in that stranger danger phase, just about a year old or so, and they don't want me to come anywhere near them. Some of us grow out of that more than others, but we all retain a certain caution when we're dealing with people we don't know, especially in a culture that's as hyper-individualistic and as tribal as ours is. Now, for my part, I'm an introvert that already has difficulty talking or relating to people that I don't know. Socially, appearances matter. The mustache wasn't helping. So I keep on experimenting with, you know, different looks, a little of this, a little of that, trying to feel comfortable in my own skin without alienating myself from other people. And nowadays, uh, the end result seems to be that I look like Elvis. At least that's what everybody keeps telling me. Which seems to be a great conversation starter, by the way. You know, I find that it makes talking to strangers a lot easier because they'll actually approach me and start a conversation. Hey, you know, you look like Elvis. Which is great because I never know what to say to people. Now look, I'm not trying to look like Elvis, actually, okay? But I literally cannot leave the house these days without somebody telling me that I look like the king. And we all know what version of Elvis we're talking about here, okay? <laughs> this is not the young heartthrob with the guitar and the hips, okay? This is the older guy with the giant sideburns who always looks a bit sweaty, slightly ill, you know, like he's had one too many peanut butter and banana sandwiches with a side of painkillers. But honestly, I don't mind. I really don't. I take it as a compliment. Elvis is Elvis. Hail to the king. As for my difficulty in social situations, being a pastor also helps. It gives me a defined role to play, one that comes with a degree of mutual respect. It gives me the confidence to talk to people like you, which is awesome. It's such a, a blessing. Uh, it's been such a blessing getting to know so many of you over the years. As long as I'm wearing the proverbial collar, though I seldom wear a real one, I know how I'm supposed to relate to people. I know where I stand in relation. But take it away, and frankly, I'm a little bit lost. As a parent, I often find myself at other kids' birthday parties, for instance, and I generally avoid conversation with other parents. The other dads are all talking about sports, which isn't really my thing, and the women look at me funny if I try to hang out with them, probably wondering why I'm not talking to the other guys. So, you know, I just sit in the corner looking like an unemployed Elvis impersonator. <laughs> now, as most of you know, I spent one of my sabbaticals a few years back driving for Uber. And the hardest thing about that was getting over the awkwardness of total strangers climbing into your car. You know, your car is just a slight extension of your personal space. Letting someone get that close is kind of intimate in a sense. It's a whole lot closer than we tend to let strangers get. 
And it takes some getting used to, you know, especially when they just came from the bar and they're on the verge of throwing up in your back seat. In this text from the book of Acts, a man that's only referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch invites the evangelist Philip, a total stranger, into his car. Well, his chariot. He seems like a pretty outgoing fellow, eager to engage Philip in conversation, and the two men end up sharing this really special, intimate moment as the other man asks Philip to baptize him. Now, it's hard to imagine a scene like this playing out in 21st century America. I've already talked about our inherent suspicion of other people, but it's not just that primal, lizard-brained caution that divides us. There are arbitrary, artificial factors that drive us even further apart. Technology has slowly lured us away from the public square, getting us addicted to lonely screens that keep us indoors instead of communing with our neighbors. And social constructs like class and race conspire to drive a wedge between us. Now, while it's never made explicit, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, I don't want to keep calling him that, by the way. It seems awfully impersonal. Let's just call him something biblical like Daniel. Philip and Daniel come from completely different cultural, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Philip is, presumably, a Middle Eastern Christian from Palestine. He appears in the book of Acts as one of seven deacons that have been charged with caring for the poor in Jerusalem. Philip is probably just a step above the poverty line himself, the ancient equivalent of a nonprofit aid worker or a Peace Corps volunteer. He probably has no real income to speak of, and we'd consider him to be, you know, kind of lower middle class at best. Now, Daniel, on the other hand, is relatively well-heeled, indicated by his fancy chariot and his entourage. He's a high-ranking employee, the queen of Ethiopia. Daniel hails from Africa, and he's a eunuch, which was an odd social class in the ancient world. Eunuchs were often trusted political advisors, trusted because they'd been castrated and therefore posed no threat to the ladies of the royal household. As for Daniel, we're told that he's charged with supervising the royal treasury. Daniel is effectively the white-collar VP of finance, if you will, an upper-middle-class guy with a well-paying job and a lot of privilege and influence. Their society, and ours, would have us believe that these two men have no business talking to each other. They aren't in the same socioeconomic class, they practice different religions, and their skin color is probably different too. In fact, there are plenty of politicians and talking heads who would argue that they ought to resent each other. Our faith, of course, teaches us differently. And this text reminds us that Philip and Daniel have more in common than it seems. Their economic differences, while real, are perhaps a bit exaggerated. Well, you might say that Philip is of the working class and Daniel is in the managerial class. Neither of them is in the ruling class, the real elites. Daniel might have a bigger bank account, but remember, he's a eunuch. He literally had to cut off his you-know-what to get this job. These men are both at the mercy 
of the ruling elite, cogs in the same machine. And they defy cultural expectations, recognizing that neither one of them is superior to the other. No man, woman, or child is superior to another in the eyes of God. And realizing this, they make this profound and holy connection. We don't know if they'll ever see one another again, but in this moment, they are like brothers. Now, I'd said a moment ago that social constructs like class and race conspire to divide us. And I use the word conspire here very intentionally because this division is intentional. It's not an accident. Race, class, even religion are weaponized by people who stand to benefit and profit from our division. The journalist Bill Moyers once served as an aide for President Lyndon B. Johnson, himself a very complicated figure. Johnson grew up in the Jim Crow South and adopted many of its racist attitudes and its language. But he also caught a glimpse of the forces that undergird them, and he, he came to recognize, I think, that this racism and oppression was systematic, intentional, evil. I'm no presidential historian, but that seems to have driven his later efforts to advocate for civil rights and to dismantle those very systems that he grew up with, resulting in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. Now back to Bill Moyers, the journalist, who was an aide for Johnson. He recalls an incident while he and the president were in Tennessee, which I will relate here in his own words. We were in Tennessee. During the motorcade, Johnson spotted some ugly racial epithets scrawled on signs. Later that night in the hotel, when the local dignitaries had finished the last bottles of bourbon and branch water and departed, he started talking about those signs. I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it, he said. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. In the years following the abolishment of slavery, wealthy Confederates recognized the economic threat that black business owners posed to their bottom line. They fought tooth and nail to systematically dismantle the protections for freed slaves that Reconstruction had promised. Racism, I believe, is always been a matter of economics, right down to the free labor guaranteed by chattel slavery. Consequently, consequently, both race and class have been used to keep us divided, to keep the wealthy voting for their own interests and the poor voting against their own interests, and to make all of us easier to take advantage of and exploit. You know, just look what happened with Brexit over in the UK. A whole country shot itself in the proverbial foot because the ruling class convinced them that it was foreigners and not a corrupt establishment that had ruined their economy. And as economic struggles worsen globally, we're going to keep seeing the same rise of demagogues who keep their fingers firmly pointed at those people instead of the ones that are really responsible. The janitor at my elementary school once told me when some of the other kids were laughing at me that when you point a finger at someone, 
You're pointing three back at yourself. Jesus said something a bit like that too, I think, when he talked about looking down on other people. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are not buying the lie that ordinary folks have always been sold, that race and class and religion ought to divide us. And neither should we, because it is a lie. It's true, we all have our differences, but that only means we have more to share with each other. I'm grateful for our church's partnerships with organizations like PBMR that give us the opportunity to transcend these arbitrary divides. They help us to recognize each other as people, people who live and love and weep, eat and play, and one day die. People with hopes and dreams, people who make mistakes and work to redeem themselves. And as the world moves into an ever more uncertain future, compromised by the very systems that have exploited everything and everyone they can. I cannot overstress the importance of building authentic community and sharing our respective resources. The work has already begun here, and it needs to continue. We're making an effort. We're trying. Today we're hosting a fall festival at the Pads Interim Housing Facility in Downers Grove, where 300 folks live 40% of them are children. And there's so many ways beyond that that we can participate in radical hospitality, in relationship building, in casting a wider net and building a bigger table. We can do that with, by volunteering with PBMR or with PADS or with going on food pantry or war relief or bridge communities or the going on children's resource center there's so many different ways that we can get outside of this little bubble that we're told to stay in and build a bigger community we don't have to be afraid of other people we need each other truthfully if we're going to make it for the next hundred years i do most of my grocery shopping at the Jewel Osco over here on Roosevelt Road. And uh, there's an older guy who's always on the bench outside, right where I often park my car. Sometimes he's sleeping there, sometimes he's just hanging out. He seems like he might be homeless, but I don't know. He's never asked me for any money, but he always asks me for a cigarette. Sorry, I don't smoke. I have to tell him as I pass him by generally not even slowing down. But last week, after I apologized for not having a smoke, I noticed he was wearing an ACDC sweatshirt. I like ACDC. I thought it was a pretty cool shirt, so I stopped and I told him so. Hey, cool shirt. Thanks, he said. Hey, look at that, would you? He said, pointing at the sky as the sun was setting. It was a gorgeous October evening, though in my hurry to buy groceries, I hadn't even noticed. I turned to look up and told him that, well, yeah, he was right. It really was beautiful, transcendent. The sun slowly descended, heralding the coming night, and we just stared at it for a while. It wasn't a long time, maybe a minute or so, but it felt special, you know, one of those 
intimate moments, the sort of thing you might have otherwise missed. How many such opportunities do we miss, I wonder, when we're just strangers passing by? Hey, you know, he said, interrupting the reverie, you kind of look like Elvis. (laughs) Thanks, I said, still looking at the gathering darkness. Thank you very much. (laughs) Amen. Amen.